0: On a warm summer evening in 1986 on Baker Beach, San Francisco, in the shadow of the Golden Gate Bridge, a group of friends lit a bonfire and had a few drinks. The sun was going down, the stars were slowly appearing one by one. The friends swapped stories and told jokes as they waited for darkness to fall. It was June 22nd, the summer solstice, and the friends had prepared for a sort of ritual with no meaning other than radical self-expression. They erected an eight-foot-tall figure of a man made of scrap wood, along with a small wooden dog, also made of discarded wood, as the moon rose over the bay area of San Francisco. The friends set the two effigies alight, cheering as they did. As the wooden man burned, a small crowd gathered, curious as to what this strange ritual was all about. And were surprised to learn that this was not activism, nor a tradition, or anything other than a unique form of self-expression. While it was originally meant to be a one-time thing, the crowd that gathered gave a few of the friends an idea. What if we did this every year? The Burning Man was born. Welcome to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks about stuff that happened. I am Tanner and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. And the stuff that happened that we're talking about today is the Burning Man, which I would say the Burning Man Festival, but there's a lot of people out there that are very adamant that it is not a festival. It's it's more of, it's just, it's just an event. It's a community. So I'm not going to say, I'm going to try not to say the Burning Man Festival, but I do refer to it for the sake of this podcast as a festival, some uh, several times through the episode. So just going to get that out of the way really quick. This is going to be a shorter episode today. Uh, and I'm going to be using less uh, sound effects just because I started school in the last two weeks and it has proved to be a lot more difficult than I expected it to be. I mean, I've been in school for several years, but this whole online school weird COVID thing going on, it's just, it's been a big adjustment. So I've had a lot to do this week. I haven't had a lot of time to work on this podcast, Um, but I'm trying to get back on the horse as quickly as possible and I'm going to be back in full swing just as soon as I can. But just before I begin... Really quickly, I want to uh, thank two of my friends on Instagram who have actually been promoting the podcast a little bit in the last few weeks. Um, My friend at History Legends and my friend at You Need to Learn About History. They are wonderful pages and uh, they've been a great help in getting some new listeners on this podcast. If you are from either of those pages and you're listening to this podcast now, shoot them a message and just thank them for that because that really meant a lot to me and I would just like to thank them for that. Uh, so let's just let's just jump right into this. First of all, um, what is what is Burning Man? Burning Man is a counterculture event that takes place for ten days every year in the Black Rock Desert of Western Nevada. As part of the event, a semicircular city made of tents, RVs, cars, and other temporary structures is erected, called Black Rock City. And at the end of the event, a giant effigy of a man is ritualistically burned, and the city is entirely dismantled. But what is Burning Man really? Well, it depends on who you ask. According to the official Burning Man website, Quote, Burning Man is not a festival. Burning Man is a community, a temporary city, a global cultural movement based on ten practical principles. Whatis.com says, Quote, Burning Man is an annual week-long experiment and temporary community, dedicated to anti-consumerism and self-expression. Quote. Another source says, It's a temporary metropolis dedicated to community, art, self-expression, and self-reliance. In this crucible of creativity, all are welcome. So it sounds pretty lovely, isn't it? Well, like I said, it, it depends on who you ask. The Verge, a left-leaning news agency, describes it as a, quote, drug-addled event. The Daily Mail, in an article about the, quote, "...debauchery of the desert," describes hallucinogenic drugs on tap that cause attendees to dance the night away on top of any vehicle they can find, often while wearing little to no clothing. Even a New York Times writer who attended the festival confirmed, they confirmed, that the public perception of the festival as a gathering of 50,000 stoned half-naked hippies is essentially correct. So what is it? A journey of euphoria in a community based on self-expression or a drug-fueled hedonistic cabal? Well, to understand the perception of Burning Man, you have to put yourself into the shoes of those who attend Burning Man. If you prefer a quiet, sober, introverted life, Burning Man probably isn't the place for you. But if but most people who attend Burning Man have a different lifestyle. Depending on who you are, it's not either-or. It's both. But modern-day Burning Man is quite different from what Burning Man used to be. In 1986, a group of friends gathered on a small beach in San Francisco to celebrate the summer solstice. For several years prior, the group of friends had gathered on that same beach to celebrate the solstice, but in 1986, several attendees built and set an effigy of a man on fire, celebrating self-expression. While it was meant to be a one-time thing, the excitement of the event caused for the gathering to exhibit another wooden man the next year, which would also be set alight. The man in 1987 was twice as tall as the one from 86, at 15 feet tall, and as the man grew, so did the gatherings. By the summer of 88, the event had grown from 35 attendees in 86 to over 200, and the effigy of the man now towered at 30 feet tall. In 1989, attendees mounted to 300, with the height of the Burning Man reaching 40 feet, a height at which it would stay for several years afterward. The Burning Man ritual seemed to be reaching a popularity among uh, counterculture enthusiasts in San Francisco, and by 1990, the governing body of San Francisco took notice. They attempted to halt the gathering before it could take place, citing that there was no permit for burning such a large effigy. After some careful negotiation, they did allow for people to get together on the beach, but they wouldn't allow for the Burning Man to be burned. And perhaps this was the end of the Burning Man. But obviously it wasn't. In 1990, a separate event was planned by two men named Kevin Evans and John Law, several hundred miles away on a dry lakebed, or playa, known as Black Rock Desert. Black Rock Desert was very remote and largely unknown, and they believed it would serve as a perfect sanctuary for their planned event. And what was their event? I'm going to hit you with a few definitions here. The event conceived was envisioned to be a Dadaist temporary autonomous zone with plans for a large sculpture to be burned and situationist performing art. And here's the definitions. Dadaism was an artistic style that came to prominence around the year 1920, post-World War I. The artists who subscribed to Dadaism rejected the logic, reason, and aestheticism of modern capitalist society, instead expressing nonsense, irrationality, and anti-bourgeois protest in their works. You could consider them some of the original hippies. Definition number two. A temporary autonomous zone. An Autonomous Zone is a place declared by the inhabitants to be outside of the jurisdiction of the law over the land. Obviously, this usually happens by means of an armed confrontation, as we've seen recently at the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, but in terms of this event, I think it was more of a mentality thing. I mean, nobody was going to come and shut down their party. It was in the middle of nowhere, nobody cared. But it was built as a way to get away from all the constraints of society, which purposefully attracted the hippie culture. Definition number three, Situationist Art was based in Situationist International, a movement and organization founded in 1957 made up of avant-garde artists, political activists, and intellectuals, and the philosophy was derived from anti-authoritarian Marxism, surrealism, and anti-capitalism. So you put all these things together, and are you kind of getting a feeling for the type of crowd this event was attempting to attract? Kevin Evans and John Law heard of the plight of the Burning Man group and proposed for them the idea that the Burning Man could come to what they now called Zone No. 4 in the Black Rock Desert, and the burn would be a centerpiece ritual in their event. The Burning Man organizers agreed, and the Burning Man was shipped off to Zone No. 4 for the first ever burn on the now-famous Black Rock Desert Playa. Approximately 120 people traveled to the desert to witness the event. The following year, in 1991, the Burning Man was, once again, sent to the Black Rock Desert for the second annual Burning Man event on location. Word of mouth had begun to spread, and 250 attendees showed up for the ritual. This time, the Burning Man was laced with neon to act as a beacon for late arrivals showing up at night, so they could find the location. It would be a staple through the 1990s of the Burning Man to be lit up with neon. In 1992, festival organizers realized that with the increasing popularity of the event, there was a real danger of dehydration and even death while on the desert playa in the summertime, and it was necessary to bring in people educated on the land and on the resources necessary to stay healthy. A task force was created called the Black Rock Rangers, an organization which still exists today, who was responsible for watching over festival goers during the event. The same year, the Bureau of Land Management made it required for Burning Man organizers to pay for their land use, and the name Black Rock City was born. That year, 600 attendees traveled to Black Rock City for the event. Also in 1992, a separate camp was opened two miles from the center of camp, hosted by a DJ named Turbo Ted, who became one of the first people to play amplified music at Burning Man. That same year, the first themed camp showed up, called Christmas Camp, with two members dressing up as Santa Claus and giving out fruitcake and eggnog. In '93, attendance had surpassed 1,000, and organizers had begun charging tickets, ranging from between $25 to $40 to stay in Black Rock City. It was now a commercial operation. In 1994 and 1995, attendance to the event grew to $4,000 per year, and ticket fees rose to $35 minimum. In 96, attendance reached 8,000, and the height of The Burning Man, which had stayed at 40 feet for six years, was raised to 48 feet tall. 1996 was the first year that The Burning Man took on a theme, which was called The Inferno, based on the famous writer Dante's depiction of the nine circles of hell in his work, The Inferno. The theme was a satire on corporate takeovers and further condemnation of the advancement of capitalism. But, unfortunately, 1996 also saw some of the first injuries take place at Burning Man, with a tent being run over by a car on accident, seeing some serious injuries. And the Bureau of Land Management launched a surprise investigation during the event, citing 10 of 16 stipulations breached by the Burning Man festival. Due to disagreements with the Bureau of Land Management, in 1997 the festival was moved to private land, though still in the Black Rock Desert. Attendance reached 10,000, and the Burning Man's height broke 50 feet. While on private land, the organizers experimented with a systematic overhaul of the event, including implementing a grid system for the streets, a driving ban inside of the city, and the establishment of a Department of Public Works in the city. And with the success of these new implementations, the festival was moved back to the Black Rock Desert Playa in 1998, though a drastic disconnect took place in the interim. Between the 1996 and the 1997 event, founder John Law broke with the Burning Man organization and Black Rock City LLC, citing that the event had lost sight of what it was originally intended to be. The rising amount of festival goers being put in an essentially autonomous zone in the desert and encouraged to practice radical self-expression was becoming dangerous for the participants and little action was being taken to protect the people. By 1998, He had actively called for the event to be discontinued altogether. But John Law's warnings fell on deaf ears. In the year 2000, attendance rose to 25,000, and as a result, local law enforcement began cracking down on crime in the city. There were 60 arrests or citations throughout the festival just that year. By 2005, attendance had risen to more than 35,000, with tickets being as expensive as $250 per person. In 2010... 50,000 people traveled to Black Rock City. And by 2015, the Bureau of Land Management had ordered for a cap of 70000 to be placed on the participants. And that year, 67,000 attendees showed up, showed up to watch the Burning Man. In 2019, the Burning Man Festival had its cap raised to 80,000 attendees, with tickets selling for as high as $1,400 per person. And in 2020... The event was completely canceled due to COVID-19, but nonetheless, groups of die-hard Burning Man attendees have still traveled to the Black Rock Desert to enact their own Burning Man ritual. And as of the recording of this podcast, I believe they're still there right now. And what is the cultural significance of Burning Man, and how has it changed over time? Well, at first, Burning Man was pretty strictly counterculture. It was a group of people who wanted to stay outside of the public eye to celebrate self-expression, but, I mean, unfortunately, it has become something different in recent years. With the advent of social media, it has become less of a form of self-expression and more of a festival built with the sole intention of a photo op even though there are stringent requirements for taking photos. In recent years, billionaires such as Mark Zuckerberg have begun traveling to Burning Man, and many critics argue that this is soiling the intention of the festival. In several instances, billionaires have arrived in small groups and circled their RVs, creating a sort of gated community where they will throw parties at the cost of over $15,000 a person. Elon Musk himself stated, Burning Man is Silicon Valley, I did read about one instance where a bunch of Google employees even shipped in a crate full of lobster for a meal at Burning Man. Doesn't really sound like what Burning Man was intended to be at the beginning. In the past 10 years, Burning Man has been riddled with crime, including hundreds of accusations of sexual assault that have gone unprosecuted. Well, When questioned about these statistics, festival organizers have either outright denied the claims or ignored them. Stories from the festival reveal that when women approach authority figures with the claim of sexual assault, 90% of them are brushed aside or given just an apology. Also, look at the price to get in. $1,400. Basically, to fight capitalism. Really? Seems a little bit out of the ordinary for me. A further grievance being raised against the Burning Man event is the pollution that it causes. The Burning Man is very vocal about their leave no trace policies, and for weeks following the event, there are cleanup crews on site to clean up any trash left. But unfortunately, the playa itself is not the problem. As seen in a video on YouTube called The Burning Man They Don't Want You to See, filmed and uh, released by Explore With Us, the channel, a family travels to the site of the festival a few days after it ends and film what they see. For miles leading up to the locations, trash is strewn everywhere, sometimes in quantities that can be waded through. And even on the playa itself, plastic bottles and bags are seen blowing in the wind for miles around. So for an organization that proclaims itself to be a leave-no-trace endeavor, it seems that many attendees don't really care if they leave a trace. Now, I work hard to present only the facts without bias, and I'm doing my best here. I'm just looking at the facts, and it seems to me that what John Law was right about in his claim is that Burning Man is something different than it used to be. For a festival that was created as separationist and anti-capitalist and supporting unity, they sure do like money. And that's really all I'm going to say about that. Again, this was a shorter episode. Uh, The Burning Man Festival does have a very cool history, rooted in some very interesting... Philosophies. What is kind of sad about the Burning Man now is that it's no longer about being different and being on the outside. Now it seems more like it's about assimilating into this culture and wanting to be part of something else and showing the world, hey, I'm different. Look how different I am because I go to this place where all these other people are different just like me. This may seem a little bit bitter and jaded on my part, but this is how I'm seeing this festival. I totally support any festival that loves to be different, celebrates diversity, and things like that. But those festivals do not include a place like the Burning Man. Especially when you have to charge $1,400 for people to go and fight capitalism. Just an observation. Well, with that being said... Thank you for listening to Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. This episode is a little bit different because this is very recent history, and this is something that can that a narrative can be talked about in the present day as it's ongoing. We'll see what the Burning Man brings next year, because, of course, it didn't happen this year. And uh, everybody stay safe, stay safe out there with COVID, stay safe out there uh, with all facets of your life. Um, If you enjoy the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and drop a five-star review, uh, and I will see you all next week.